Hey friends, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. I'm Cara, your host and saloniere, excited to always introduce you to women who are just kicking romp out in the world and not letting bullshit or burnout stop them. I have flirted with burnout over these last few months. For those of you who have been listening, many of you know that I have been doing a 10-week user experience design boot camp in New York City. So that means I've been living in a sublet, crashing on friends' couches, and basically arriving on campus at 8.30 in the morning, and usually, if I'm lucky, wrapping up homework and crawling into bed sometime around 11.30, 12 at night, and largely working on weekends, not really sure if I'm going to be able to get home. So it's been a wild ride. So for all of you that may have put me on a pedestal in the past and think that I've got all of it worked out and that I never get tired or life doesn't get stressful for me, let me assure you that is not the case. I'm a little bit on fumes right now and still recuperating after such a a sprint. But the energy I do have left in the tank is focused on welcoming today's guest, Evelyn Wright. Evelyn's an economist, energy analyst, meeting facilitator, and longtime cooperative enthusiast. I'm going to let her explain more when we jump over to the interview about her work at Sustainable Energy Economics. But she's also, in her spare time, and spare is probably in quotations, she's the founder of Commonwealth Hudson Valley. It's a new project and a web publication promoting a more just, democratic, and sustainable economy here in the Hudson Valley. There is so much that we cover in this episode. I learned a ton, and I feel like every time I run into Evelyn or see something she's posted, it's just smart, informative, and always thought-provoking. And I, I hope you come away from our conversation thinking that as well. Voila, here's our conversation. Hey, Evelyn, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. Hey, Kara, it's great to be here. I know our orbits aligned during the new economy panel at One Fair this summer, so this is an awesome opportunity. That was such a great panel. It really was. Y'all were such a great group with like such different perspectives, but doing amazing work here in the Hudson Valley. But I, I have to say, as you were talking, at one point, I wrote, invite Evelyn to Salon. And then, like, you kept saying different things, and I found myself, like, underlining it more <laughs> and more for emphasis. So I'm a bit excited to get to pick your brain and learn more about you and your work today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Yay! So for the sake of the listeners, from the outside looking in to me, it seems like there are two intersecting spheres of your work. Sort of one sphere is as an economist at Sustainable Energy Economics, and then also as a writer and founder of Commonwealth Hudson Valley. Obviously, titles don't make the human or tell the full story. So can we kind of unpack these roles? And which one do you want to dive into first? Sure. Well, you know, I, I've been thinking about this. And, um, you know, I've, I've listened to some of your previous podcasts getting ready for this and, and really reflecting that I had the great 
fortune, you know, one of the themes on some of your, in some of your conversations are the expectations that we were raised with and how that impacted our professional lives. And I realize how lucky I, I am that I was raised with the expectation that I would be curious, that I would always be learning things, and that whatever I ended up doing would be an outgrowth of that. And um, so I have really, you know, followed my nose and and just followed what I wanted to know. Um, and so that got me studying climate change in grad school. And, I, and that's really been the organizing um, kind of problem for all of my work. So um, I've been working on climate change for about 20 years. And most of that time, I've been doing energy policy analysis. And it's something I just landed in as a postdoc at EPA. First job out of grad school wound up there and they said, here, we've committed to do this project with this tool, with these outputs. Uh, three people have already tried it and failed. Please make it work. <laughs> and <laughs> No pressure, right? <laughs> like here, here's this steaming pile. Can you, can you help? <laughs> Actually, I only found out about the three failures gradually over time. <gasps> but, um, <laughs> it's like, well, this person actually worked on it for a while, too. Why don't you ask them? You know, like, <laughs> And I go talk to them and they're like, oh, yeah, I never figured out how that was supposed to work. So, so yeah, I got, I got, you know, handed a, a methodology and I've just been doing that ever since. So, you know, after I left EPA in the traditional fashion, I got hired by the consulting company that I used to hire when I was at, e at the government. So, um, and it was, I was supposed to be a consultant as a kind of a stopgap until I got a job. And instead it turned into the thing I've been doing for the last 15 years on and off. And so I named it Sustainable Energy Economics about seven years ago because I kept going to conferences and people wanted to know my affiliation. And I was like, oh, yeah, I look I look like a dork because I don't have a company name. So I'll name it something. <laughs> um, that, that's how then Vital Core came up. I was like, yeah, I know people are going to ask for this. Like I actually, but Vital Core is me. <laughs> In that work, what I do is really specialize, they call it energy system modeling. Um, so it, it's just very uh, number crunchy. You know, what I actually do is stare at spreadsheets all day and write emails about them. <laughs> and so I have, a, I have a computer model of the U.S. energy system that has every power plant in the country and the wind and solar potential and um, supply curves for different kinds of coal and all the automobiles that are registered in every state and I can throw and it, it runs out to 2050 and calculates via cost economics different configurations of the energy system and so then you can say okay what happens if I put a carbon tax on what happens if um, uh, New Jersey wants to join the greenhouse gas compact that the Northeast states are rejoin, I should say, the, the greenhouse gas compact. So I do, you know, all of these kind of really technical what ifs about policies to reduce carbon emissions. And so that's my that's my day job. So so what I'm hearing, just to make sure that I understand and people listening understand, the biggest question that you're looking at is looking at different inputs, but really how they intersect with carbon emissions. That's right. Okay, got it. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, we can also do, you know, what if we have a renewable portfolio standard? We do a lot of what ifs on um, future technology costs, you know, because those are one of the big unknowns. Um, so, you know, what, what I tend to do is spend a lot of time talking people into exploring all the uncertainties and looking at them together. So what if we change future natural gas prices and future electric vehicle costs and future solar costs at the same time? How do different combinations of those affect how different the energy system and the emissions picture might turn out? And who are the stakeholders around you? Or I guess maybe the real question is, can you share some of your clients and maybe an example or two? Yeah, sure. So I I tend to either work for government agencies that are doing this kind of analysis in-house or want this kind of analysis done. So I've got a project for the Department of Energy that I'm helping them do this, build this kind of analytical capability for themselves. I did a project for the state of Vermont about five years ago where they had set some ambitious carbon emissions targets and wanted to figure out what kinds of technologies and policies were going to be important to try to get there. And and Vermont's in kind of a unique position because they already have a zero carbon electricity system. And so that's, you know, that's where most of the immediate reductions are to be had in the rest of the country. They're already there. And so, you know, they've got a real issue. I think almost three quarters of their emissions come from transportation and, and home heating oil. So those are the the sectors they're really interested in reducing. Right now, I've got a great project for an environmental organization called the Great Plains Institute, which is a, a really unique organization that does, um, they do a lot of convening of different kinds of stakeholder groups to try to get coalitions together on around what they can agree on. And they're, they're out in the Midwest. They do a lot of red state, blue state kind of work. And so um, they, they've got a really great group of uh, people from utilities, state environmental regulators, and environmental organizations from the region that stretches right through the mid-continent from North Dakota to Louisiana, looking at how can we decarbonize first the electricity system and then via electrification the different sectors that the, the electricity system serves. So we did an analysis of technology options for uh, producing electricity, and then we did an electric vehicle analysis as we start elect- adding electric vehicles in, in really large numbers. How does that affect loads in the power system? How does that interact with your efforts to get more renewable on the grid? So those are the kinds of things that I do. Thanks for sharing that. I, I feel like it makes it a little bit easier for definitely me to grasp. And I'm someone that used to do like a lot of what if analysis, but more in the, the finance and trouble debt restructuring space. So I get the, yeah, I'm just feeding all these different scenarios <laughs> into a model. But I think maybe some people listening aren't as as down with that kind of stuff as we might be. <laughs> yeah, when when people ask me what I do, I'm like, uh, let's see, what can I say briefly that's going to make sense? <laughs> that's where I often like cut to the chase like a kindergarten kid. I, f- I feel like as I've been making a little bit of a pivot in my my professional life, I really kind of looked at like, what is the essence that I'm doing? And it's like, I just mm-hmm. ask people a lot of questions. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, it must trying to distill that into like a single sentence that you can use it at a networking event has to be a challenge and a half (laughs) for you. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that is life by day. I say by day, but probably day and night and sometimes weekends. And then you also have this whole other piece to your work that I sort of have kind of met you through. Yeah, right. So like I said, I've been, I've been doing climate change for 20 years. Um, I, I started right after the Kyoto conference, which was supposed to be when we got serious about doing something. Um, and so I've watched us for 20 years not tackle this the way we need to. Um, and just in the last five years, the the clean energy side of things has really started to take off. So um, solar panels have come way down in price. Now batteries are coming way down in price. Electric vehicles are widely available. And so that side of things is really starting to move. And there's a lot of great people working in that space. I was attracted to climate change as a dissertation topic and, a, and then a, a, a life's work because of the way it brings all of the challenges related to having a more sustainable economy together. Because it's about our technology, but it's also about rich and poor and how we got, how the, the countries and the societies and the, the parts of cultures that are rich got to be that way, which is by burning fossil fuels, and how back in the 90s, it was all about rich countries versus poor countries, and the poor countries saying, you basically, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you guys created this problem, it's going to hurt us, and um, there's no way that we're going to forego getting wealthy the way you did. And so, from the beginning, there's been a really big equity piece of the climate challenge as well, and just really clear that we needed to fundamentally rethink where wealth comes from and how we address poverty in the economy um, in order to solve this problem as well. And and in the last 20 years, we've only gone backwards on that, I think. Um, well, globally, it's a mixed bag because um, there has been a lot more burning of fossil fuels and a lot of poverty reduction around the world. Now it's it's a lot about inequity within countries, of course, and we've seen inequality just soar here, and that that whole promise that we're going to grow, 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 and some people are going to get spectacularly wealthy, and it's going to trickle down to everybody else, and, and lift everybody else, is not working anymore. Um, it's not... Not, not here in the United this- States, anyways. Uh, well, and I think not not in a lot of parts of the world. And so um, w- um, I just got really focused on, you know, this is the piece of the challenge that we're not solving right now. And so that's where the impetus to start Commonwealth Hudson Valley came from. There's a lot of really exciting things going on in response to this challenge, both here in the United States and around the world in terms of, um, the flourishing of cooperatives and um, new forms of community ownership and public community partnerships and community investing. And um, I just wanted to be part of those solutions and helping boost that part of it. And so, yeah, that's that's where that work has come from. I have kind of a long background in uh 
different kinds of community organizing and um, group process facilitation. You know, I've always been interested in how we solve problems collaboratively. And so to see now that there's a real movement to apply that kind of thinking to the economy again has been really exciting. And so uh, for me, it's a way I really love to work. You know, the work, the work, the work in my day job, like I said, is very like me alone with the spreadsheets. And so there's also a piece of it that's I want to do more work in the community. I want to be more um, working with people and helping people solve problems together. I imagine that's kind of a funky energy to balance, right? Because like you're so uber focused and doing like such highly technical work by day, you know, getting probably minimal input and then having to sort of work in this little silo, right? And then at the same time, then going from that to group-based problem solving, like that has to be such a head change for you. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely is. And I've really realized that in the last couple months that um, just how much the work I've been doing is really oriented around like accurate procedures and getting things right and being meticulous. And this other work is much more about relationships and practices and presence and doesn't have those kind of hard edges to it in terms of like, am I doing this the right way? <laughs> um, and so it is really, it's, it's, it's more like it's, it's challenging to know how to do it well and whether I'm doing it well or not, because so much of it is is more qualitative. Yes, and I am nodding enthusiastically as you were speaking, because I've shared with you and I've shared with my listeners that I'm, you know, waist deep in a user experience design immersive, and everything that you just said is something that I have been literally thrashing around in, you know, for the last several weeks, where as someone who is a recovering type A woman, and I would say on the wagon, off the wagon perfectionist over the years, I have learned that like working in a group environment, trying to solve problems that have both a quantitative, but largely a qualitative research aspect to it, it is hilarious on the good end and then like (laughs) just wild on the other end and because you you forget like how much people are bringing to a conversation about something else right like we all have our implicit biases and our histories and our experience and actually having to leave space for that but then also like peel back those layers at the same time can just be I don't know. Right now, I'm finding it exhausting, but I think maybe doing it at a normal pace will, will, will it will make it fun and interesting again. <laughs> well, absolutely, and and in fact, I'll add, if you don't mind, one more layer to that list you just gave of how people on teams are different. This is something that's really fundamental to the way I look at group work. One of the most unknown unknowns in life, of course, is what is someone else's conscious experience like? You know, we, we really can't get inside each other's heads. And and I think that our conscious experience is actually more unlike each other's than we think it is. You know, we tend to assume that what's going on in other people's minds is more or less qualitatively like ours. 
I think that's not the case. I think we really fundamentally process information differently. And that um, those differences in, in, you know, because there's just too much information coming at us from a sensory perspective for us to use all of it at any one time. And I think the pieces that we slice off and orient to are actually really quite different. And that that's what makes us um, both so valuable to each other on a team and so incredibly irritating. Um, (laughs) You might sum it up as the things I can't stop thinking about and the things I don't even know I'm ignoring. And um, that's, that's irreducible. You know, we can share our experiences. We can, we can uncover our implicit biases with a lot of work, um, but we're never going to get past those. We're we're never going to bridge those cognitive differences. And in fact, they are what make teamwork so great because we are so different but it, but it is what, what makes it also irreducibly annoying. <laughs> yes, like the design process is really funny and I'm sure you're leveraging it in your own sort of flavor and shape. But like this idea that like, especially when you're in say like an ideation phase, like really trying to be expansive and like, you know, sometimes forming that question that you're trying to study and then giving that space to good ideas and bad ideas. And I think one of the interesting things that your comment about what can be so valuable and irritating in group work, but the the upside is sometimes like you get a really unexpected solution. Like, so when you give space to like, there are no bad, good or bad ideas. Like right oh, yeah. now we're just generating ideas and even if they seem crazy and outlandish like throw them in and you know i know in the the group that i'm in you know on the youngest side i I think there's a woman who's 22 or 23 and just graduated from school and then there's me like on the old lady side that's you know like 42 and coming with like 20 years of work experience but yet the ideas don't always come from the top and I'm not saying I'm positioning myself at the top but you would think like if you have more years of work experience or just life experience you know well certainly like there'll be a lot of ideas and sometimes like the really best idea has come from someone that has no experience around whatever problem you're trying to solve because they're thinking of it so fresh Oh yeah, no, it, it can be just magical and that's that's why I love working with groups and in groups is that you can come to places that nobody could come to alone. And when the group suddenly comes together on the solution, it's just, it's, it's so uplifting, you know, it's just such a wonderful thing to be part of. Yeah, there's a feeling when you stand back at the end, you're like, wow, totally ended up in a different place than I expected. But isn't that awesome? The perspective that I'm advocating with Commonwealth Hudson Valley is really that that is what's normal for us as human beings, that we met our needs collaboratively for almost all of human history. And it's only in the last couple hundred years that we started splitting that apart and creating this hyper-individualistic, you're on your own, you got to you gotta strike out, you got you know, you to make it, you got to take care of yourself um, kind of economy that we have now. And 
the situation where we're in relationship to all these large, whether it's the, the corporation that employs us or the corporation where we go to get our health care or, you know, the government far away that we can't, you know, break through the bureaucracy of, uh, that's really new in human history. And that I think that's not going to be the way to best meet our needs as we navigate a world that is going to keep on rapidly changing for at least the next few centuries as a result of what we've already done to the climate and as a result of the things that we're going to need to change to try to deal with it. So can you share for context just some of the groups that you're working with and maybe some of the questions, like more specific questions you're trying to answer? Because I think I... I understand at a really high level, but like, how does that play out? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the strategies that has been around for um, a couple of centuries now in the Anglo-American tradition, but used worldwide is is cooperatives. So, um, you know, when one goes to incorporate a business, you can incorporate as a corporation or you can incorporate as a cooperative. And that means... Um, everybody owns a piece of it and all of the profits of the business are shared to the people who own it um, in proportion to the business that they've done to it, done with it in, during the year. And crucially, everybody has one vote by virtue of being a member in the governance of it rather than having your your governance power being proportional to the amount of money that you've put in. And there are several different kinds of cooperatives. Um, a lot of people are familiar with food co-ops. Um, those are usually consumer co-ops. So the members, the people who own the store and created the store are the ones who want to shop there. And they said, you know, we want a store in our community that supplies these things. That isn't here. We're going to have to create it ourselves. And so they own a business cooperatively, a, a housing co-op like they have in the city. That's that's another form of consumer cooperative. We, there's something we all want, and we're going to pool our resources to, to create it, and then we're going to govern it together. Um, but one of the things that's really uh, growing right now is worker-owned cooperatives. So businesses where the workers own it and manage it jointly. That's a kind of an approach to dealing with the increasingly insecure and poor working conditions that we have is there's no reason that we can't just own businesses ourselves and manage them ourselves. And so that's one of the things I've really been boosting a lot. There's a lot of uh, regions of the country that are right now doing a lot to support cooperatives. Um, New York City has spent upwards of $8 million over the last three or four years supporting several dozen organizations that then support worker cooperatives with um, financing, business planning, accounting, um, you know, business development, training, you name it. They're uh, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, about 10 years ago, some of the big institutions, the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western and the Cleveland Community Foundation got together and said, well, what, what can we do about the poverty that's right here in the neighborhoods, right around the university and around the hospital? What can we do that's different from the failed strategy of let's try to find some big business that we can court to come and locate here? And they decided to start three worker cooperatives 
that would meet the need, the purchasing needs of those institutions. So they started a laundry, a greenhouse, and a uh, solar and LED light installation company. And those then went on to do work for the institution. So the laundry does all the laundry for the Cleveland Clinic. And the greenhouse supplies food to the cafeterias in the university and the clinic, and as well as a, a variety of other places. So they've, they've created, uh, at this point, several hundred uh, worker-owned jobs, where after the first year that the workers are on the job, they can say, yeah, I want to I wanna become an owner of the business. And through payroll deduction over the next couple of years, they, they pay in and they buy their share and they then have an equal vote in governing the company that they work for and own. Um, so that's one strategy that I've been really trying to um, help interject into the economic development conversations that we have in this region. Um, like I mentioned in the city, there are several dozen organizations that, that support co-ops. We should have at least one here in the Hudson Valley. And um, there are some cooperatives here now, uh, Earth Designs Landscaping down in Rosendale. There's a number of farms that are operating cooperatively here. So also um, working with a, a group of folks that are interested in starting to network people who are either um, starting cooperatives or interested in starting cooperatives and uh, meet their needs. Another strategy that's growing a lot around the country are community land trusts. That's a strategy for dealing with the increasing unaffordability of housing and in some cases commercial space. So the land trust can own the, the land under housing and then make the housing available either through rental or through um, purchase as permanently affordable housing. And again, there's usually some kind of community governance of that land trust, whether it's um, the, the residents of the properties who are on the board of the land trust. So it's another strategy of how can we meet our needs collectively rather than trying to appeal to a wealthy developer to come here and make the thing that we want that is then going to be, you know, unaffordable for people who aren't privileged. Okay, there is so much to unpack here. <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to be totally transparent here. I feel like this was something that until I did a fellowship with the Good Work Institute several months ago, I came from training, right? Like you go to school to be an accountant and you get a degree where you've taken a bunch of finance and accounting classes that are all rooted in capitalism. I think until the last probably couple years, I feel like I understand that there is a change that needs to happen. But I think I've been like, I can't see what that is. And then I've been exposed to things like food co-ops after living in Brooklyn and then living in Western Mass where my favorite grocery store in the universe and I still miss it like the Dickens. Um, the food co-op was amazing. And I, I think there's a part of me that thought like, oh, okay, well, there's this small pocket of people. And I mean, honestly, like sometimes it was like the hippiest of hippie, especially in Western Mass, that were doing this like cool kind of experimental thing, at least from my perspective. And I was like, I didn't understand how many other models or ways 
cooperatives could exist. So I guess one, I want to thank you for this bit of education and sort of giving more and different examples. And then I guess it also brings up the question like, and this, I know this came up on our new economy panel as well. Like, what are we heading towards and how do we get there? Because it, it seems to me like there are the people that get it. And then there's a whole mass of people like me that are kind of like, oh, just starting to wake up to the idea that it exists. And then there's an even bigger subset of people that are like, probably even terrified at the idea of something changing so radically in how we do business. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's two examples, because you're right that that when we see cooperatives kind of sprinkled very lightly throughout the landscape uh, of our lives here, although it's not true um, throughout even the country, because the backbone of the U.S. agricultural system has long been producer cooperatives, um, and so they're much much more common in the, in the Midwest, um, where you know a lot of the the kind of brand names that we associate with things like um, Welch's grapes and Ocean Spray cranberries, those are all cooperatives of producers. So the growers jointly create a business to process their product and market it. And so that's been a, a real backbone of the agricultural system since since the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. We've also got rural electric cooperatives that started in the 30s to bring electric service to places where uh, private companies couldn't be bothered to go because it's expensive to string the wires out in, in sparsely populated areas. And so about a quarter of the landmass of the U.S. is served by rural electric cooperatives where the owners of the utility are all the people who are served by it. Now, many of those are no longer democratically governed. A lot of the people who are members of those cooperatives don't even know that they are owners of the business that they get their power from. And in fact, there's a big movement underway to revitalize those democracies and um, in, in, in some cases to really change the direction of those companies through revitalized participation. So they're not as fringe or unusual, even in the United States, as you might think. But there's a couple great examples in Europe that folks in the cooperative world look to. Two different regions. Um, one, um, in the Basque region of Spain, uh, there's an area called Mondragon, where in the 1950s, so right after the devastation of, of first the Civil War and then the World War, uh, a priest started the first cooperative there as kind of a local self-help movement. And by doing it as a cooperative, he was able to kind of fly under the radar of all the politics. And um, he started with a school and then a, a business and then a bank to serve that business's growth needs. And today, um, they are the 10th largest employer in Spain. It's an industrial group of about 130 cooperatives with their own bank, their own university, and they employ some 70,000 people. Whoa. And they're just an absolute, you know, and they've just transformed that region. Now it took decades to build that from nothing, um, but it is now the backbone of that region's economy. 
Another place with a, a similar timeline but a, a somewhat different model is uh, the Emilia-Romagna region of Italy, where they have a federation of cooperatives. Um, so they're not all part of one organization, but all cooperatives um, put some of their proceeds into this federation, which then helps start other cooperatives. And so they have thousands of cooperatives in the region. And, um, you know, some, you know, almost everybody in the region is a member of at least one cooperative. And again, they went from a region that was totally devastated by the war to being one of the most prosperous regions in Italy um, as a result of having this strong network of cooperatives. So it, it is something that can really transform the economy over time. And, and actually, I, I heard um, a really interesting interview with an economist who has studied the Italian cooperatives. And at one point, um, a, a, an American interviewer asked a member of one of these cooperatives, you know, what happens if you guys decide to, you know, you get an offer to buy the business and you just sell it out to some private investor? And the guy looked at him as if he was nuts and said, if I sold the business, where would my children work? Wow. And so that, that was the attitude of like, this is, this is something that is serving our community over the long term. You know, why would we ever give it up? So that's that's something that can happen and that, that can be built. And it's not, you know, the, the 20th century for, for the U.S. and in many parts of the world was kind of this battle of fantasies about remaking the economy radically. And, and you know, we're going to just wipe the slate clean and start over with this vision of how to make everything better. And, of course, that was just just tragically disastrous all over the world and and this is a strategy to to build something from the ground up person by person business by business that can totally change the way we think about providing for our needs and you know creating work at the same time as creating the things that we need Evelyn, I think my mind is blowing a little bit. There's Excellent. some gaskets coming loose in really great ways. And I want to thank you for ripping me out of a place of ignorance because the everything you just shared is totally fascinating. I want to just take a stab at this to see if I'm hearing and kind of understanding you right. When you're saying strategy, you are saying that it could be done similar to what happened in Basque or what happened in Italy, where it's sort of like, oh, we need a bank. And then the bank pops up. And then that bank needs, you know, I'm trying to think what what a bank would hire. They need security guards. So there would be a company that would form perhaps cooperatively to serve that need for the bank and be able to create work and create a business. And then those security guards need their uniforms laundered. And then that piece could kind of sort of lift up from the milieu and it can just keep like snapping on pieces as needed, as opposed to trying to create this like giant seismic pivot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm I'm involved in uh, starting the Kingston Food Co-op. Yes, uh, this makes yes. me so excited. 
So we started our membership drive about four months ago. We've got about 200 members. Um, our goal is to get to 1,000 before we open, so we're making really good progress. Uh, we hope to have some very exciting news about a potential location soon. Um, but I, I'm really hopeful that that co-op will be a, a very strong node in this growing network. So we'll be able to strengthen purchasing from local farms and local producers. Um, there are some some parts of the country where there are uh, cooperative distributors that are owned by, in some cases, combinations of the producers of food and the buyers of food and um, the processors of food to make that local distribution network stronger. Um, I, I have a, a fantasy that we'll have a co-op that provides um, human resources and back office support. Um, we might have a call to, to lots of area co-ops, so they don't all have to have those functions in-house. We could have a co-op that provides uh, various kinds of information technology support to all of the co-ops and other businesses in the area. So it is something that can very much grow organically based on need. What also sounds interesting about this is the idea that it's a radical change that the implementation is not radical. It's a much more organic, it seems. Right, because I think radical implementation of change is, is actually a fantasy. It's not reality. <laughs> and it's a very dangerous one. Yeah, I mean, one could probably argue, and you might have to, to hand my rump back to me on this one, but like one could argue that, I mean, the United States was sort of a crucible for that kind of radical change, right? Like, I'm trying to remember the book that I read back in the day, The Radicalism of the American Revolution. And I feel like that got me thinking when I was younger, and it's been a long time since I've thought about that book. But it, when people came here, it was sort of set up as an experiment, like as a, as a reaction to like what wasn't working at a very high level. And now we're seeing like that kind of radical change and like 200 plus years downstream, like what what that kind of has led to. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm having trouble finding the exact question in all of this, but it's again, my mind is being sort of twisted sideways today. So <laughs> hopefully the listeners can can sort of keep up with this as well, because I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I think one of the things I'm maybe the core thing that I'm trying to do is just expand people's imagination and just to start asking or just start thinking about really how odd it is the way we have things set up now. You know, if you think about the, the expectations that we have here in this country about democracy, where it's, it's so much a piece of our identity our self-identity as, as a culture, that even children demand a vote on family decisions, right? <laughs> they don't always get them, but we vote everywhere. You know, we have classroom elections starting in elementary school. And we, you know, when we're going to choose a date for the company picnic, we vote on it. And, you know, all these kinds of things. But then when we go to work, we, we hand just, it all over. We hand it all over and we just say, I'm going to let this person, you know, these people above me, this structure up above me, be in charge 
of what I do all day long and of all the important parameters of my life. And we don't question it at all. Now, I'm sure that the people who started agitating for democracy in the 1600s (laughs) did not have that arrangement in mind, right? They did not say, I want to vote for a legislature, and then I want to go work for somebody who's going to control me. (laughs) Probably not, actually. A real accident of how things shook out and how... The, the politics were developing and how the economy was developing and some of the power deals that got carved out in that changing landscape of, of European politics that w- wound us up in this situation. And I don't think we have to be satisfied with that anymore. And in fact, in much the same way that those democratic revolutions in Europe really got their start um, or got, got a big boost from the development of the printing press, and suddenly these ideas are being passed around Europe, um, you know, at a point where you could still be imprisoned for printing this stuff, um, and in some cases be executed for it. Um, But that led to the spreading of these ideas like wildfire. I think we're in a similar position now where we can learn from experiments and projects around the world in almost real time And we don't have to be beholden to people who have more money and more power to say, oh, they know how to do things. We don't know how to do it. So we just have to be employed by somebody who does. No, we now have distributed knowledge and the capacity for anybody to learn how to make and manage anything. And so there's no barrier other than the organization of the funds and the people power to make something happen. But there's there's no reason that we can't manage things collaboratively for ourselves anymore. So, Evelyn, coming from 20 years of seeing how people make change, both 10 years from a corporate perspective and a financial perspective, and then 10 years as a health and lifestyle strategist, basically doing turnaround work with individual people. I'm hearing what you're saying. And then what keeps popping into mind as you're talking is how painful is it going to have to get for us collectively before we address the pain point? I think there are actually a lot of people who are already addressing it because we are seeing these kind of projects and efforts popping up everywhere. So I, I think we're already at the point where an awful lot of people understand that we can't just keep on doing things the way we're doing them. And, and the fantastic thing about these strategies is that they are so bottom up. They are driven by people who want to learn and want to grow and want to make good things happen in their lives. And so anybody who starts a cooperative They learn so much, they develop so many skills in that process that they wouldn't have had by just being an employee, that the amount of empowerment they get transforms all of their possibilities from then on. And so, you know, I think that this is a very self-reinforcing kind of process that, that can really take off once it starts going because it is so rewarding to the people involved. It makes my heart sing when you're using words like 
getting people to use their imagination and fostering possibility. I guess for people listening who hear what a giant complex problem this is, but are interested or are curious, like what are ways that people can touch, support, or even get involved in this work and in this change, right? Because from the outside looking in, it kind of looks like an avalanche of people in skis and and cars and trees, like just barreling down the side of a mountain. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot that people can do. I mean, you know, there are probably, wherever you live, there are probably efforts somewhere in this space going on, Um, whether that's a a local cooperative that you can get involved in. Um, I just had a great uh, chat for an article I'm going to write about the repair cafes with John Wackman uh, yesterday. Do you know about the repair cafes? I do, but can you describe it for people that may not be involved? Yeah, so this is a fantastic... uh, like the true sharing economy approach. Um, so at the library or at the in the church basement or in the community center on Saturday afternoon, uh, we'll have a, a handful of people who know how to fix things. They're called repair coaches. And you can bring, as John says, your beloved but broken item, be that your... Um, 1961 Electrolux vacuum, or your uh, your lamp, or your um, your ripped backpack, or your bicycle, or, or your, your toaster oven with a wonky yeah. short circuit button right now. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and someone there will help you fix it for free. And um, I I brought a lamp into the Asopus Repair Cafe last month and chatted with a, a number of people about you know why they come and spend their Saturday afternoon fixing things and they told me I, I've got skills and I love to be useful I love to meet my neighbors I've made so many friends here um, this is a way of Uh, reducing waste. This is a thing I can do to help my community and help my neighbors and and help the earth. And so uh, it's just a wonderful collection of people from literally all walks of life helping each other out. And um, so that's another really great example of a very, you know, low organizational lift, low structure, but, you know, way that we can help each other meet our needs. Um, And there are John told me now 1,900 repair cafes around the world, which all started out of one woman in Amsterdam who decided to try this out and see if it would work. And now they're 10 years later, they're all over the world. Um, so, you know, uh, I would say if people want to get involved, first of all, open your open your mind to what it would mean to try to to share what you have and what you need to create with your neighbor. So like at the Repair Cafe, if you have skills, how can I share them? Uh, maybe you have skills uh, running a business. Maybe there are ways that you can help budding entrepreneurs who don't have access to the same kind of training or the same kind of resources that you had. Um, one of the things that I've, we haven't talked about yet, but that I've gotten really interested in in the last 
uh, month after going out to a, a great conference in New York about this, uh, sorry, in Detroit about this, is um, how to create community investment funds for investing in local businesses. You know, those of us who have uh, retirement funds or, or other savings, however much we love our, our local community and believe in local economy, we have our money parked in, in New York banks and on Wall Street because that's how the financialization of our economy has centralized finance. Um, but there are efforts underway now to, to create ways that we can direct investment dollars into the local community. Um, entrepreneurs can uh, now post projects on these so-called investment crowdfunding websites to draw investment from people all over the country. Um, so there's there's lots and lots of things going on, and it's a question of um, what's happening in my community and, and what do I have that I want to share and what would I like to, to help my neighbors create. Got it. So I'm hearing... Like just looking for the cooperative businesses that are are springing up, or maybe not even businesses, cooperative organizations, right? Like Repair Cafe. Yeah. And just really starting to patron those organizations and support the work that they're doing, whether it's financially, whether it's being involved, but just making it more sustainable. Yeah. And, you know, I, with Commonwealth Hudson Valley in my newsletter, I'm trying to um, for this region, help people find those entry points. Uh, but I know this is going on all over the country, and so and and all, you know all over the world. So this is something that's out there to get involved in. I know this sounds like a really basic AF kind of question, but if someone is listening and they get in front of their computer and they're like, "I am totally down with what Evelyn is talking about," besides the word cooperative. Like, are there other, I almost think in terms of search terms, like, are there other words that they should use that can help them dial into what's happening locally? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so the, the term that this kind of work seems to mostly go under is the new economy which is an incredibly vague term. <laughs> that was my education at one fair, like, <laughs> like new economy. And when you put them together, it's like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think it's coming out of that intuition that what we've been doing is not working and we need something else. And whatever it is, we need to build it by building it rather than by theorizing it. So it's something that we're going to make project by project and community by community um, out of the pieces that we find ourselves, you know, ready to start assembling. So there's a great group called the New Economy Coalition, which pulls together a lot of this work. So that's something to look for. Um, there's a great group called the Democracy Collaborative, which... Um, started this work out in, in Cleveland that I was talking about, the Evergreen Cooperatives, and they're now bringing that work to cities around the country. Um, so they're a great resource. Um, another term that gets used a lot is the solidarity economy. And that's a term that grows out of movements in Latin America and in Europe. Um, I haven't adopted it, although I really like it, um, because I know that that word solidarity has this kind of provocative edge to, to some American ears. And um, one of my big points is that, like, this doesn't have anything to do with the ideological struggles that we, we wasted the 20th century in. 
but that's another term that you can look for, solidarity economy. And that encompasses this whole range of ways that we can share, ways that we can do it yourself, um, you know, various levels of formal and informal collaboration. Amazing. I feel like I'm always working towards how can we make it doable and how can we make it doable in a non-overwhelming way for people who mm-hmm. just want to start taking sustainable steps forward but not have to do hours and hours and hours of research just to kind of get into action. And and I, I think that probably fits with the the build it instead of just theorize and talk about it Yeah, that you're yeah. talking about. So, Evelyn, I have to ask, the work that you have been doing for 20 years, I mean, if we look at both roles that you're in, right, these are humongous, big, (laughs) complex problems with, and they're around change, which I know from being a ruckus making change maker for years It can be painful for people, and it can also move at a near glacial pace. So I guess, how do you define success for yourself? Or conversely, like just not feel like you're going nowhere and spinning your wheels every day? I don't know. Where on that continuum do you do you land? and, And what's it like in that spot on the continuum? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think at the base of it, back to that that conversation we were having about cognitive difference earlier, it's part of my just general cognitive orientation that I'm only interested in big projects. <laughs> and, I, and I say, I will race anyone to the big picture from any starting point at any time. It's just the way I think. And so that's, it's just in my nature, I think, to be interested in big fundamental problems. I didn't, I didn't share with you the first stage in my intellectual journey actually was that I was a physics major. And I went to graduate school in physics. Okay, then this question, yeah, this, (laughs) that probably would have been answered earlier. And I, I left graduate school in physics for a few reasons, um, but, but part of, the main part of it was that I realized I wasn't going to find out how the universe worked in any f- reasonable amount of time, and so <laughs> I could cross that question off my list and go on to the next one. So your, your tenacity intellectually has, has a line in the sand. Uh, well, I don't want to waste my time on a question that can't be answered. So, you know, then, then, then the question I went on to was, why are we doing this to our environment? And what can we do about it? And that's the one I've been been stuck on for 20 years. But it certainly it is, um, it is wearing to work on climate change. And I remember about um, eight or nine years ago now, I after working on this energy policy stuff for a while, I went back to teaching. And I was teaching uh, undergraduate environmental policy and economics and had to put together a class on climate change and the science and the impacts and where we are. And I had been kind of not delving into that literature for a few years. I had been just on the energy side of it. And it was really depressing. And um, and I'm I'm just very aware of how much this ecosystem where I grew up has changed um, and how irreversible those changes are. And it it is very, um, 
you know, you, you talk about the, the BS and the burnout. It's definitely a component of it for me is just the grief about what has happened to our world and uh, that it's already irreversible. And, and we certainly need to put everything into not making it that much worse. Um, but uh, I guess I think that's a big part of why I have shifted gears like this, because I really want to work on something that is uplifting and where we can see change in in communities and in people's lives um, on, a, on a shorter scale. Absolutely. I was wondering if this led to burnout, because I just, it makes me think of the interview I did with Catherine Hayhoe and a line that has reverberated with me since our conversation was when I look at, I don't see very much hope when I look at the research. And that line has just hung there for me. And I felt like I needed to to find out from you, like, because we all define what bullshit and burnout is differently, or we define bullshit differently, and then we experience burnout differently (laughs) is, I guess, a more accurate way of saying it. And I had to wonder, like, I don't look at the research. I'm not looking at the models. I'm not running the numbers and all of the analysis on it. But in trying to be empathetic, I, I, I feel like that has to, there has to be a psychic cost to doing that work every day or a psychological or even emotional cost of just seeing the reality and, you know, where I stand, like, I sort of understand how urgent and dire this is getting, but not at the, the level that you probably look at on a regular basis. Well, it certainly does, and it, it may be that it's it's uh, more forefront in my consciousness than most people, but I have to think that it really weighs on all of us, that we know that things are really not right, things that are way bigger than us that we feel so tiny next to. I suspect that it's really a key component of our times, that everybody is feeling this weight, and that's another reason for me why the community work is so um, such a good counter to just, you know, looking at the things that are, are wrong and the changes in energy policy, which really feel like pushing a rock uphill very, very slowly. Absolutely. It sounds to me like the community work is actually your form of self-care in some yes. way, shape yes. or form. I'm I'm happier now um, that I've started doing this than I've been in, in several years, definitely. It's really uplifting. And, you know, you asked how I would define success. It's in the first step, it's really about that imagination. So um, last week, uh, a, a working group on cooperatives and shared leadership that has emerged from some some conversations that the Good Work Institute hosted last fall about cooperatives. Uh, we had um, a lawyer come up from Hofstra University who I had seen speak at a conference. His name is Michael Haber, and he he specializes in alternative forms of organization for nonprofits for you know, radical groups or community organizing groups that um, see that there's some advantage to organizing as a nonprofit, but don't want to be another top-down 
you know, donor co-opted nonprofit. Uh, how else can we do things? And he presented four different models that groups around the country are using to really structure their work in ways that are um, more uh, more bottom up governed by the the staff or the members of the nonprofit organizations. In some cases, with community advisory boards or general assemblies of all the members. And, um, you know, at the end of the, the night, we had like 60 people there. I mean, it, it way exceeded our our expectations for attendance. And everybody was like, when can we get back together and learn more about this? And, you know, I want some coaching for how to talk with people at my organization about this. And, you know, I want to learn more about this model. But the number one thing people said when we asked them, what was your big takeaway from tonight was that there are alternative models, that something else is possible. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's what I want. That is, that is, you know, 50% of all I want is simply for people to say, oh, it is possible to do something different. So that's really success for me. And I imagine like those rooms are so interesting because like while someone is presenting, I am just picturing like as a speaker looking out and just seeing like cocked heads and like, you know, (laughs) furrowed brows and like faces scrunched up, maybe even a little drool (laughs) dribbling out and then like excitement, like when it sort of clicks in, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was it was a great night. And and, uh, Michael Haber said... Um, you know, we, we, we went around the room and had everybody introduce themselves and where, where they were from. We had people from all over the region, all kinds of different organizations. And he said, this is really inspiring to see how much interest this is here. He works with, you know, organizations on, on Long Island and said, you know, this would be my dream in 10 years to have this kind of community all in one room together uh, exploring these issues together. So that was really also great to hear from somebody who's been been working with groups like this for a long time. Evelyn, I have to ask this question on behalf of the tribe of listeners that I know to be do-gooders or wannabe change agents in some capacity. Like for some, it's at work. For some, it's outside of work and in their passion projects. We've been talking about imagination and this example that you share is, you know, just getting to see that aha moment for people and like them kind of come online to like, oh, there are some some ways to dig in. And we've talked about some ways to dig in. What have you seen as most effective in breaking down that gridlock of imagination? Well, I think one of the things that has been most effective so far is actually the frustration that we have experienced at the national level of our politics for the last decade plus at this point, um, in terms of just the real breakdown of of the hope that somebody's going to fix this for me. And I, I really see this working in climate change that during the, the 2000s, during the Bush administration, there was a ton of work on climate policy at the state level. States were doing climate action plans, they were passing climate policies, they were starting regional climate pacts. And in 2008, when Obama was elected, everybody put their pens down, folded their hands and said, okay, the feds are gonna take care of this now. And, and all of that work went away and nothing happened 
for eight years. And of course, um, you know, the things that the Obama administration tried to do got blocked and didn't go anywhere and then yeah, blah, blah, blah. As soon as Trump was elected, all that state work started up again. And now there are states that formerly would have not, you know, where you weren't even allowed to talk about climate change are now starting to talk about what are our climate policies going to be, which regional groups are we going to join. So there's a real kind of push-pull between the, the frustration with the gridlock that we've been seeing at the national level and just the intense ugliness of that and the determination to do it our ourselves at the community level. Um, so I have just seen so much welling up in the past two years in response to that. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing is, I like to call it the, the accumulation of capacity building, that really we've had all kinds of um, movements for social healing and personal empowerment and skill growing. I mean, you talk about the, the coaching field and how powerful that has been in helping usually individuals um, build the capacity to change their lives and develop new skills and take on projects and, and make them happen. We're building on decades of that kind of work and getting to a point where people really have an appetite for what's the next challenge that I can take on. And, and I think that it's really continuing to do that kind of work in whatever setting people are and look at how can I help both myself and the people around me continue to grow those capacities to manage things for ourselves and do it collaboratively. Because a lot of that empowerment work that's been going on for the last decades has been in community, but often has had a really individualistic focus. It's about me and my life, right? And and in our um, in our culture, where we've been doing a lot of kind of personal healing work and personal empower work, it, it often gets very individualistic. And for me, the growing edge is really, once I've done that, it's really getting me ready to a point where where I can then go and do that work in community and, um, and across differences in community and really start working with people whose, whose skills and resources are quite different from my own. So that's what I would advise is look for those those opportunities, which are both opportunities to share your skills, but also be on a growing edge in terms of who you're collaborating with. Yes, I feel like when you said the words, how can I help myself and the people around me? I am such a firm believer in the power of questions, right? Like if if you can just find the space to drop a question and you know, sometimes people don't want to engage with that question or with you in that moment, but like you are planting something when you plant mm-hmm. a question. And I feel like that hung in the air for me as you were talking because it's it's so simple, but also mind expanding and hopefully action generating as well. Great, great, yes. So I have one more question for you. We have talked about so many things. And quite honestly, I feel like I could fling questions at you (laughs) for like 200 more days and probably still not have everything I want to ask you answered. 
For folks listening, what do you most want them to take away or to know from our conversation today? I think it really is that that shift of imagination to step back and look at really how crazy this economy we have is. This idea that um, we're going to have people who are already wealthy create companies or new products or grow things, that their primary drive is going to be to get more and more and more wealthy. And somehow as a byproduct that is supposed to generate meeting people's needs, providing people jobs, um, and, and making a sustainable world. And just how backwards that is. And that might have made sense at one point when the problems that we had in our world were problems of scarcity, right? When it was hard to feed everybody, when it was hard to have enough things for everybody, but that's not where we are anymore. Now we're a world that suffers from problems of abundance <laughs> and overabundance. And we need to really rethink how stuff gets used, how information gets used, how money gets used, because what we're doing is so wasteful and it is in, it has already collided with planetary limits. And so um, just to step back and think, it doesn't have to be this way. This is not, in fact, how humans lived through most of human history. And we don't have to keep doing it this way. So I know that's very big picture, but that's where I would start. Well, you race towards it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I think for people listening, where these concepts are new to them, I, I feel like we can overload people and, and make it feel impossible, or we can just start scratching at, at some of these issues and looking for where something realistic and sustainably actionable can fall out. And I am so appreciative for how much knowledge and experience and really how articulate you are about talking about this in a way that someone who feels quite novice in this world can actually absorb and take in, albeit my mind got blown a little bit <laughs> earlier on. But this was well, amazing. Thank you, Evelyn. Well, thank you, Kara. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I, I really believe this is, this is a multi-generational change process. It's already been going on for some generations, I think. And so, really, it's enough of a starting point to just say, huh, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. That's a good enough place to start. Yes. <laughs> thank you again. Oh, thank you, Kara. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Hey, it's Kara again. Before I duck out, I just wanted to say thank you for tuning in. And don't forget that you can find all the links and the resources that we mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. 
And if you dug this episode or this podcast in general, and specifically what Evelyn's doing, please show your support by sharing this podcast with one person you know that you think might really want to hear it. As always, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to everyone that made this podcast possible. One, my guest, Evelyn Wright, who is just awesome, but also the team behind the scenes. So my producer, Craig Snyder, my assistant, Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone, and the High Dials for the awesome theme music. I couldn't have survived over these last couple of months or continued to put out this podcast without all of their help and support and encouragement. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.